Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro, and I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. It's great to be with you again, and today is part one of Stop Fixing Your Church. Uh, Stop Fixing Your Church, part one. And actually, there's a subtitle of this called Quit Over Functioning. Now, as many of you know, I came into this journey that we call Emotionally Healthy Discipleship in my late 30s very reluctantly through pain and actually through the uh, integrity and leadership of my wife, Jerry. Uh, I was leading this apparently growing, thriving church here in New York City, but things were not so exciting behind the scenes uh, in the church, especially in senior leadership or in our marriage and home. So she'd been trying to get my attention for a number of years, uh, and then finally she quits. Uh, Not the marriage, but she quits participating in my pathology and the unhealthy system that I was leading, she realized it was, she saw very clearly there was issues in me, not simply circumstantially around me. And uh, so she quit and started attending another church. But as her quitting, that precipitated the whole journey we know today is emotionally healthy discipleship. In fact, if she had not quit, uh, we would not be having this podcast. Uh, New Life Fellowship Church would not be what it is today. And this very large, expansive ministry that we call EH Discipleship would not be all around the world. So what had happened was I was, again, we were living or I was living and our church was living one thing on the outside in public and another on the inside. And uh, so Jerry quit. And so she quit a number of things. And uh, I'll, I'll list them here. And uh, they come out of her book called The Emotionally Healthy Woman. It's called Quit Being Afraid of What Other People Think. She stopped that. She quit lying. She quit dying to the wrong things. She quit denying anger, sadness, and fear. She had lots of that. She quit blaming other people, took responsibility for her life. She quit overfunctioning. She quit faulty thinking, and she quit living somebody else's life, and she grabbed hold of her integrity. Uh, and as a result, she saved my life, our marriage. Uh, we would have been stable. We would have been together, but not nearly as joyful and thriving as we have been the last 23 plus years. And she saved our church. Uh, It was the most wonderful gift she perhaps has ever given me, even though I didn't want it at the time. And so her differentiation, her transformation forced mine uh, in a painful way. She she stopped over-functioning for my under-functioning in certain areas of life. And you'll hear about this in just a few minutes. And it transformed me uh, through a crucible and leadership. And uh, God met me. And so uh, over time, she developed this quitting. Uh, and, and just in terms of just theologically, and she began to speak on it. And actually, I took it all as, as she was growing and I was growing. I brought it into our church. And it changed the whole way I lead. And so I, I said to her, we got to put this down into a book. And uh, so... She is the as the you know clear ideas person. We spent almost two years writing it down after she'd lived it for uh, quite a long time, and uh, and so the book was actually called "I Quit" originally, and it was Jerry's Cazaro with Pete's Cazaro, and the publisher kept saying, "You got to call it Emotionally Healthy Woman because men don't buy women's books. That's a tragedy." Uh, and uh, the book sold actually quite well as I quit, but. What was clear was Jerry was not interested in promotion uh, and even having a website and et cetera, et cetera. So we just brought it into our larger, what we call the Emotionally Healthy Family, and we changed the title to Emotionally Healthy Woman. And uh, now, of course, it's a best-selling book. It's got a DVD and a small group curriculum. It's used all over the world. 
Uh, but the eight eye quits are so powerful uh, that we still uh, require it for all senior leaders that we have in our church to read and master the eight eye quits uh, because they're so theologically important and practically. Uh, and I recommend it to, to male leaders, not just female leaders, uh, all around the world. Just problem is that men need to probably put it on a Kindle because of embarrassment of what other people think, being caught on a train reading The Emotionally Healthy Woman. But one of the biggest things in all seriousness here is, um, was things that Jerry did was she quit overfunctioning. And that's really the title of our podcast this week and, and next week. And to quit overfunctioning is foundational to leadership. In fact, uh, unless we take up that challenge, uh, and I'll call it a biblical discipleship challenge, it's nearly impossible to raise up healthy biblical teams, communities that effectively engage the world, transform lives in the name of Christ. So overfunctioning uh, is defined very simply as doing for others what they can and should do for themselves. It's doing for others what they can and should do for themselves. And that's a key task for every leader, dis discerning that boundary, dis uh, discerning, you know, where do I step out in courage? Uh, when do I stop rescuing? Uh, and so this requires a, a large process. And so we see some great examples of it in Scripture, everything from Martha and Mary, where Martha is overfunctioning, gets very bitter and angry. We see it uh, also in the life of Moses, uh, everything from Jethro, where he's taking care of uh, two, three million people, and Jethro's father-in-law comes along and says, you need to start delegating. We see it in Numbers 11. We see it when he hits the rock. He just he overfunctions and gets himself in deep spiritual trouble. And I found out over time, it also got me in deep spiritual trouble. So um, again, this undergirds uh, emotionally healthy discipleship. Uh, we talk primarily about the course, the emotionally discipleship course, and we almost made this book a companion to the relationships course, the part two of the discipleship course, which it's so uh, foundational and provides such a, a biblical framework uh, to it. And, uh, and again, I would say for emotional healthy leadership as well, as you've read that book or using it as leadership teams, uh, the emotional healthy woman, the eight themes here are, again, very foundational. So today what I want to do is I want to invite you to listen uh, to Jerry as she lays out over-functioning uh, as a critical theme of following Jesus. And this is going to be Jerry reading from the audio version of uh, a chapter, actually chapter six of The Emotionally Healthy Woman. So you're actually in for quite a treat. And what I'm going to do next week is I'm going to take what you heard this week and I'm going to expand it and apply it very specifically and very directly to pastoring, to leading, to church, to ministry. And what's so interesting is I was preparing uh, that application. There's so many marketplace applications and actually further home parenting marriage applications. Jerry makes a number of them here as well. So it's going to impact the way we do sermons. It impacts the way we understand pastoring. It impacts the way we uh, uh, function as team leaders, hiring, firing. It's just so core to our relationship with God and ourselves and other people because it touches deeply issues of trust, uh, trusting God, issues and, and, and trusting and waiting on God versus grasping and control out of fear. So it's a very large theme, and I know even if you listen to it this week, and I do a part two next week, uh, it, you will find as you go into this, it's just even larger than that. So again, I'm not sure you can lead effectively without grasping some of the nuances of this uh, theme of overfunctioning. But let me uh, not speak any longer. I want you to just 
you know, sit back, enjoy uh, this audio version of Quit Over Functioning by Jerry. God bless you. Chapter 6 Quit Over Functioning. We overfunction when we do for others what they can and should do for themselves. Overfunctioners prevent people, including themselves, from growing up. The street, however, runs both ways. Wherever you find an overfunctioner, an underfunctioner inevitably follows close behind. Overfunctioning dangerously imperils friendships, marriages, churches, workplaces, and families. I know this well. I was an overfunctioner for many years. A poem entitled Millie's Mother's Red Dress by Carolyn Pearson demonstrates the toxic fallout of overfunctioning. As Millie's mother lies dying, a beautiful red dress she never wore hangs in her closet. In her last moments, she recounts her regrets and the lessons she learned too late in a conversation with her daughter. Well, I always thought that a good woman never takes her turn, that she's just for doing for somebody else. Do here, do there, always keep everybody else's wants tended and make sure yours are at the bottom of the heap. Maybe someday you'll get to them, but of course you never do. My life was like that, doing for your dad, doing for the boys, for your sisters, for you. You did everything a mother could. Oh, Millie, Millie, it was no good for you, for him. Don't you see? I did you the worst of wrongs. I asked nothing for me. When the doctor told your father, he took it bad, came to my bed and all but shook the life right out of me. You can't die. Do you hear what'll become of me? It'll be hard, all right, when I go. He can't even find the frying pan, you know. I look at how some of your brothers treat their wives now, and it makes me sick, cause it was me that taught it to them, and they learned. They learned that a woman doesn't even exist except to give. Can't even remember once when I took myself downtown to buy something beautiful for me, except last year when I got that red dress. Oh, Millie, I always thought that if you take nothing for yourself in this world, you'd have it all in the next somehow. I don't believe that anymore. I think the Lord wants us to have something, here and now. I passed up my turn for so long, I would hardly know how to take it. Do me the honor, Millie, of not following in my footsteps. Promise me that. Millie's mother realized at the end of her life that she served neither her family nor herself well. She overfunctioned at the expense of her own soul. Her family underfunctioned, stunting their growth into maturity. She did for them what they could and should have done for themselves. At the end of her life, all she had was painful regrets about the harm she had done. Stepping out from the bottom of the heap. Can you relate to Millie? I can. For years, I put myself at the bottom of the heap. I, too, was doing for everybody else, always putting myself last. I was the primary parent for our daughters. 
I took care of our home. I paid the bills. I managed our schedules. I planned yearly holidays and days off. I created special occasions for our family. I did birthdays and monitored all medical and dental appointments. I did all the cleaning, cooking, laundry, and shopping. I entertained groups from our church weekly and overnight guests monthly. I lived as if I were superwoman, doing the work of three people. Pete was an underfunctioner at home because he was an overfunctioner at work. He did the job of three people at our church. He lived as if he were Superman. This created large gaps at home that I filled. In fact, my overfunctioning at home made it possible for Pete to overfunction at church. I ended up doing for Pete, as well as our daughters, many things they could and should have been doing for themselves. I grew tired, weary, and resentful. This leaked out in sarcasm and complaining. That didn't change our situation very much. Pete may have taken the kids to an after-school soccer game, but he was still on the phone. As I began my journey into emotionally healthy spirituality, I realized I was the problem, not Pete. If I wanted Pete to stop under-functioning at home, I needed to stop over-functioning. I could no longer shield Pete from the consequences of his under-functioning as a husband, as a father, and as a member of our family. If Pete didn't step up, then perhaps our daughter would not play in the local soccer league. If Pete didn't want to prepare a guest room, then there wouldn't be any more overnight guests. I discovered everyone in my family could each do their own laundry, including Pete. I also realized I wanted to renegotiate expectations around parenting. I did not want to be the primary parent. I wanted Pete to share an equal burden in carrying the anxiety and weight of our children's needs, emotionally, academically, physically, and spiritually. I also did not want to cook seven nights a week. Pete was capable of learning how to prepare food and taking responsibility for dinner two nights a week. And it wasn't all smooth sailing. I can assure you, my family, especially my Italian-American mother-in-law, was not cheering me from the sidelines. Pete was forced to face his own overfunctioning role at church and underfunctioning role at home. He wasn't happy about it, at least at first, especially when it came to cooking and laundry. Over time, however, he learned a few things. In the short term, the quality of our meals declined significantly. I didn't mind as long as there was food on the table at 6 p.m., and I didn't have to think about how it got there. Pete was less upset with the changes than our daughters. Their anxiety came out as anger. Mothers are supposed to do the cooking. You're mean, yelled Faith. Eva complained, Dad's cooking is horrible. I'm starving to death. She was right about Pete's cooking. He had a lot to learn. But I remained resolute and calm, determined to achieve some balance in my life. Despite some initial resentment, Pete came to realize how much he loved co-parenting. In the beginning of taking on more responsibilities at home, Pete continued to do the jobs of three people at church. But now he was dropping a lot of balls at work. He soon realized how much he was overworking at the church. Pete changed the way he functioned at church. He could no longer launch new initiatives without taking into account his responsibilities at home. 
He slowed down the church, eliminating, for example, large events and outreaches that absorbed enormous energy and time. God-given limits and boundaries became part of his vocabulary. Pete reordered his priorities at church and learned to say no to events that impacted his new commitments to our marriage and family, even if it disappointed some people. Interestingly, the church grew and flourished as he made these changes. Overfunctioning inventory. Let me repeat. Overfunctioning is doing for others what they can and should do for themselves. Overfunctioning is more than simply a bad habit. It is a weed whose deep roots can often be traced back through generations in your family of origin. And the thorny branches of that weed reach far out into our workplaces, parenting, marriages, churches, and friendships. Overfunctioning is not an all-or-nothing kind of condition. It exists on a continuum that ranges from mild to severe. Listen carefully to this following assessment in this inventory to get an idea of where you fall on the continuum. In your mind's eye, place a check next to the statements that describe you. I generally know the right way to do things. I move in quickly to advise or fix things lest they fall apart. I have difficulty allowing others to struggle with their own problems. In the long run, it is simply easier to do things myself. I don't trust others to do as good a job as I can. I often do what is asked of me, even if I am already overloaded. I don't like to rock the boat so I cover for others' shortcomings. Other people describe me as stable and as always having it together. I don't like asking for help because I don't want to be a burden. I like to be needed. If you checked three or more boxes, you may be over-functioning. If you checked four to seven boxes, you probably have a moderate case of over-functioning. If you scored eight or above, you are in trouble. The five deadly consequences of overfunctioning. It's easy and perhaps tempting to discount the damage done to ourselves and others because of overfunctioning, but it's no small matter. There are at least five deadly consequences of this behavior. It breeds resentment, perpetuates immaturity, prevents us from focusing on our life's calling, erodes our spiritual life, and destroys community. Overfunctioning breeds resentment. Perhaps you recall the story of Mary and Martha from Luke 10. Martha, in classic overfunctioning mode, is completely caught up in the demands of preparing an important meal for some very distinguished guests, Jesus and his 12 disciples. Among other things, her to-do list includes harvesting or shopping for ingredients, setting a large table, prepping food, borrowing mats, tables, and serving plates from the neighbors, cleaning the house, hiring a musician for the right background music, serving the meal, cleaning up the meal, and perhaps, most importantly, making sure that everything goes perfectly. But even when preparations seem to be going well, Martha is angry and resentful. 
especially at her sister Mary, who sits enjoying the company of Jesus. Martha's too angry to enjoy Jesus herself. Martha's overfunctioning is cloaked in the guise of caring for the needs of others. However, in trying to accomplish too much, she not only loses sight of herself, but of the very purpose of all her hard work, to welcome and care for her guests, including Christ himself. Martha confuses caring about someone with having to take care of them. I relate to Martha more than I want to admit. For most of my Christian life, what I misunderstood as caring was actually taking more responsibility for people than God was asking me to. This included everything from babysitting people's children and providing transportation to giving away money, offering my teenage children advice when they weren't asking for it, ironing Pete's shirts when he could do it himself, and being readily available for other people's crises. On one occasion, Pete invited two well-known Christian leaders from out of town to come to our home for lunch. As usual, I worked extremely hard to present a perfect-looking home and exhausted myself cooking an elaborate meal. Beginning two days ahead, I prepared homemade clam chowder, homemade bread with cheese, and a killer homemade chocolate cake. And all of this was done with a baby on my hip and a toddler tugging at my leg. Sadly, I believed that my exertions themselves meant I was caring for these people. But like Martha, I was tired, cranky, and stressed out with those around me. I'm sick and tired of this, I complained. Why doesn't anybody help me? When one of Pete's lunch guests casually remarked he wasn't hungry and nonchalantly pushed away his plate, I was devastated. How could he not appreciate my hard work? I protested to Pete in private. It wasn't until years later that I began to realize I could care for people without overfunctioning. I knew I had turned a corner one evening in particular when we hosted another overnight guest. I straightened the house, but I didn't clean it immaculately. I served a simple, not elaborate dessert. I let my kids be themselves. After dinner, we settled down in the living room with coffee. I sat and mostly listened as our guest, a fellow pastor, poured out his heart. I remember being aware of Christ's presence. If one of the kids needed something, I let Pete jump up and get it. When the dishes piled up in the sink, I let them be. I was able to be truly present with myself, with Pete, and with our guest. I thought back to Jesus' beautiful invitation to Martha. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Luke 10, 41 and 42. And I began to realize that this invitation was also for me. Overfunctioning perpetuates immaturity. Moses was an overfunctioning leader who mistakenly believed his self-sacrifice helped his people. Day and night, he sat before long lines of disgruntled folks trying to settle the seemingly endless disputes that arose among them. He was so overwhelmed and exhausted that it never occurred to him there might be a better way. It took an outside person, his father-in-law, Jethro, to point out the obvious. What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work's too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. 
Exodus 18, 17, and 18. Moses' life changed dramatically when he followed Jethro's advice and appointed judges to hear most of the disputes. Until he allowed others to take up their legitimate responsibilities, Moses himself was the largest obstacle preventing the healthy growth and maturity of his people. But old habits die hard. Later, in Numbers 11, the Bible describes how Moses' overfunctioning gets him in trouble again when the people of Israel blame him for their unhappiness with the food rations. They didn't want to struggle with learning to trust God's promises. Instead, they demand a rescue from their pain, and Moses readily accepts the role of superhero and takes full responsibility to save them. Unfortunately, in doing so, he not only engages in self-destructive behavior, but also ensures the ongoing immaturity of his people. The question Moses needed to ask himself way back when is the same one we need to ask ourselves today. Do we really love others well when? We don't require our children to consistently carry age-appropriate responsibilities in the home because we don't want to deal with their resentment and bad attitudes. We protect someone we love from feeling inadequate or insecure by discouraging them from taking healthy risks for growth and achievement. We fulfill all the tasks needed for a successful small group or ministry. Prepare our home to host the meeting, prepare materials, lead the group, provide refreshments, clean up, recruit, and follow up with newcomers, pray, meet special needs of group members, plan small group meetings, and train an apprentice. And don't encourage others to take responsibility. We allow church to become a spectator sport in which a few carry the weight of responsibility for the many. The lie that overfunctioning whispers in our ears is this. You are the only thing holding everything together. If you stop, things will fall apart. Actually, the opposite is true. The more we overfunction, the more others are demotivated to make changes. If we let go of our overfunctioning ways, God's work will prosper in them, in you, and ultimately in many others. If we don't, we almost guarantee that those around us will remain in immaturity. If an underfunctioner is going to take responsibility, we who overfunction must cease from saving, fixing, or advising. Growing up in any area of life is challenging, whether financially, spiritually, emotionally, or relationally. Few underfunctioners will make the first move because the benefits they receive are too satisfying, at least in the short term. Somebody else bears the weight and responsibilities so they don't have to. To step away from what others can and should do for themselves initially appears harsh, but it is actually a loving act. Overfunctioning prevents you from focusing on your life's calling. At the end of his life, Jesus said to God, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. John 17, 4. It is doubtful we will be able to say such a thing ourselves at the end of our lives if we are over-functioners. God had a plan for Christ's short, earthly life, and he has a plan for your life and mine. However, if we are focused too much on others, we will be easily sidetracked and miss out on the unique calling God has for us. 
When we overfunction in service to others, we often underfunction for ourselves. We lose sight of our own values, beliefs, and goals, which is precisely what happened to Moses. He became so preoccupied with the problems of his people that he lost the focus of his own life's goals. It is sobering to think about what might have happened to Moses and the Israelites if Moses had not been willing to listen to Jethro and stop overfunctioning. Sometimes, like Moses, we are too close to a person or situation to discern if our efforts to provide care are hurting or helping. Would Moses ever have fulfilled his life's calling to get the people to the promised land if he believed he was indispensable to settling all their disputes? As a mother of four and the wife of a very active ministry leader, I find it challenging to resist the temptations of overfunctioning. Sometimes it feels as if it's easier to focus on everyone else's needs than it is to take the requisite time, space, and energy to focus on my own life's goals. I must regularly ask myself, how am I being faithful to the life God gave me? How am I integrating my role as wife and mother with my own unique passions, talents, and limits so God's unique call in my life doesn't get swallowed up in the demands of ministry and family life? Pete and I have worked together for many years. I normally enjoy it, but there are times when I have to say no to one of his projects because I realize it does not align with my personal goals. In our earlier years, I said yes to everything, and then I grew weary and resentful because not everything Pete believed God was calling him to do was a good fit for me. Reflect on your life for a few moments. Are you so busy focusing on others that you've lost focus on your own needs and goals? In the midst of doing things for others, children, a spouse, friends, relatives, or coworkers, do you routinely make time to ask yourself questions such as these? Am I being the person I want to be in this situation? Am I doing for others what they could and should be doing for themselves? Am I living in line with my values? Is this the work to which God has uniquely called me? What do I want that I'm not getting? What results am I getting that I do not want? What am I not doing that I would like to be doing? What am I giving that I don't want to give? What will I do with my time when I stop over-functioning for others? These are difficult and challenging questions. Each of us lives within the constraints of our marital status, family, and job responsibilities. This requires thoughtfulness and planning. Conversations and consultations with others will be needed for certain decisions. For example, when I decided I wanted to read for half an hour before going to sleep several times a week, I simply carved out time and space to do so. But when I decided to go away for a three-night retreat or a weekend with friends, I consulted with Pete because it impacted him, our children, and our finances. Nonetheless, there are things that you can change, cut out, or add in order to focus on your God-given life in a healthier way. The key is to remain focused on your own life's direction while remaining an open, 
clear communication with the other significant people in your life. Overfunctioning erodes your spiritual life. By the time Martha's excessive caretaking reaches its peak, she is giving commands to Jesus. Tell Mary to help me, Luke 10, 40. Her overfunctioning not only prevents her from experiencing Christ's love, it makes her resentful. She believes she knows better than Jesus what Mary, her sister, should be doing. Christ alone is the Savior. We are called to trust and to surrender to his love. When we cross the line and put ourselves in charge of running God's world for him, we enter into dangerous territory, into the very rebellion of our ancestors, Adam and Eve. I know I'm overfunctioning when I think I don't have time to stop and be with God. For this reason, contemplative practices such as Sabbath-keeping, silence, and solitude help me to resist this temptation. God, for example, created us to work six days and to rest one. Because of my propensity to overfunction, Sabbaths are essential for me. It's how I intentionally set aside time for God to do the work that only God can do in me and in the world around me. I recall how I felt one Friday afternoon, especially as I prepared for a Sabbath that was to begin at six that evening. I had finished my emails, closed down my computer, folded the laundry, checked off all my errands, returned phone calls, and completed all the church work required in preparation for the following Sunday. The house was in order. As I symbolically turned off the lights on Friday evening to mark the official beginning of my Sabbath, I prayed, Okay, God, I'm going off duty. You're in charge for the next 24 hours. Something inside of me shifted. I actually breathed a sigh of relief that I didn't have to do anything for the next 24 hours. I was really going to let God be in control of the universe. I was free. What about you? Are you able to accept God's weekly invitation to stop and rest, knowing that he is capable of running the world without you for at least one day in seven? Or are you on the Martha plan, over-functioning to the point that it's becoming damaging to your relationship with Christ? One of the great signs that you truly believe in God is when you rest in his sovereignty and saving power and resist the powerful temptation to overfunction. God doesn't want us to overfunction or underfunction. Rather, God invites us to take responsibility for our own lives and not be overresponsible for others. Overfunctioning destroys community. The stories of Moses and Martha provide clear pictures of how overfunctioning negatively impacts communities. When Moses was dealing with the food crisis described in Numbers 11, the community atmosphere became so toxic that Moses despaired of life. If this is how you're going to treat me, Moses pleads with God, please go ahead and kill me. Numbers 11:15. And the situation isn't much better with Martha. Imagine you are one of the dinner guests trying to enjoy that great meal with Jesus while Martha stomps angrily around the room, muttering under her breath and staring daggers through her sister. Fun times. 
If my spouse or teenager is underfunctioning and I am overfunctioning in maintaining the relationship, my actions distort God's original intention for community. When people function properly according to God's design, there is truth and relationships are marked by love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. When overfunctioning and underfunctioning are present, relationships are marked instead by dissension, conflict, blaming, helplessness, anger, and despair. Author Ed Friedman describes the negative relational impact of overfunctioning this way. When one overfunctions in another's space, it can cause disintegration of the other's being. I like the word disintegration because it refers to inhibiting the growth and maturation of a person's God-given sense of self. Overfunctioners actually believe they know what is best for everyone. In doing so, they invade and limit the development of others. This occurs when a parent of a 14-year-old makes that child's decisions to protect them from the world. The parent organizes the child's free time, chooses extracurricular activities, picks out clothing, and maybe even arranges friendships. Adult children are stunted in their growth when they live at home but do not contribute emotionally or financially. Employers discourage initiative and creativity when they move in quickly to rescue employees rather than allow them to struggle with their own problems. Church leaders and members who always serve and fill in empty slots for volunteers without sharing their own limits and weaknesses reinforce underfunctioning in others. Healthy community requires that individuals take responsibility appropriate to their age, life stage, gifts, and abilities. It's unlikely the underfunctioners will make the first move. For this reason, the overfunctioners have to face themselves first. Then there is the real possibility that underfunctioners will also embark on the life changing journey of spiritual and emotional maturity. If you are an overfunctioner, you may not be able to make the underfunctioners more responsible, but you can make yourself less responsible. Minimally, your community will function more authentically, with less frustration, exhaustion, and anger, and distancing that so often accompanies the rescuing and bailing out of others inappropriately. Breaking free from overfunctioning. To quit overfunctioning is easier said than done. The patterns of relating that we create are often fixed and long standing. We learn overfunctioning by observation and osmosis from our own family. So resistance to breaking free is profound, both from within us and without. We tend not to see we have the problem because we are only trying to be helpful. Change can be profoundly difficult and anxiety producing. To remain calm when you stop overfunctioning requires staying the course throughout these four phases. Admit you are overfunctioning, unleash the earthquake, prepare for chaos, and stand firm. Each of these phases thrusts us into deeper levels of maturity in our relationship with God, 
others, and ourselves. Admit that you are overfunctioning. Overfunctioning comes in many shapes and forms. It can range from sewing a button on your spouse's shirt when they can do it to repeatedly bailing out your adult children financially. You will need to discern your own unique warning signs. One thing that tips me off that I am overfunctioning is when I begin to believe things will fall apart if I don't do what is needed. I was a stay-at-home mom when my kids were young, but I also worked part-time out of our home during school hours. One year, however, I considered taking a job at the local YMCA, working in recreation, a great love of mine. The hours, however, were 3 to 6 p.m., three days a week. Immediately, several large obstacles surfaced in my mind. How could I disturb my husband's life? He was already under a lot of pressure. Pete would have to rearrange his schedule in order to pick up our girls from school, drive them to their after-school activities, and prepare dinner. I knew Pete could do it. I just wasn't sure he would, especially three days a week. I also expected my children would put up a fight if I disrupted their predictable afternoon routines. All kinds of thoughts ran through my head. Nobody can take care of them like me. I'll mess up Pete's life. This could put him over the edge in stress. The kids will suffer. Things will become disorganized. He's late a lot. They're going to be full of anxiety. Things will fall apart if I do this. The final thought was like a bolt of lightning that brought me back to reality and helped me to recognize that I was slipping into overfunctioning. I knew then that I needed to take that job, regardless of the consequences. Pete and the girls needed to adjust. This was now my opportunity to stop underfunctioning in my own life and do something I enjoyed while simultaneously contributing to our family income. You know you are crossing the line into overfunctioning when you hear yourself saying things like, We won't celebrate Christmas as a family unless I do it. I'm the only one who can do this right. It's just easier if I do it myself. I'm afraid of their reaction if I ask them to do more. And it is this realization that prepares you for the next phase to unleash an earthquake. Unleash the earthquake. Introducing change into a relational system is like unleashing an earthquake. It knocks everyone and everything off their feet and may even topple long-standing structures. This change is similar to reclaiming, discovering, and living out your personal integrity. You admit you are over-functioning and are now ready to disrupt the status quo. The rules of the relationship are about to change. It is no longer business as usual. It is not telling someone else what to do. It is telling them what you are going to do or not do. Few things arouse more anxiety than shifting the balance in a relationship. The underfunctioner experiences increased anxiety and often counter moves to reestablish the original unhealthy balance. Yet this moment offers the greatest possibility for everyone involved to cross the threshold into an accelerated season of emotional and spiritual maturing in Christ. The size of the earthquake depends on the level of maturity of those involved, the history of the relationship, 
and the willingness to avail themselves of outside help if needed. But when you first quit overfunctioning, even in something small, it can feel cataclysmic. After processing my thoughts about taking the job at the YMCA, I told Pete about the job and how much I wanted to take it. I was prepared for him to say that he was not willing to disrupt his life so significantly. In that case, my backup plan was to find alternative childcare. Fortunately, however, he agreed, albeit reluctantly, to the changes the new job would require. That evening, we informed the kids about the change. They complained more than I expected. Dad will forget to pick us up. We'll never make our soccer practices on time. Pete was known to be distractible, so the kids were justifiably nervous about him. He's always on the phone, they complained. Dad doesn't know how to take care of us the way you do. I wasn't sure at that point if this was going to work, but I pushed through my doubts. Prepare for chaos. Whenever we differentiate and give up our old ways of behaving and living, we can always expect a reaction from those close to us. Change back, or don't you dare, may be the words you hear. Chaos means the relational system is now operating in unpredictable ways. I have yet to see anyone who stops overfunctioning, who makes a change in themselves by becoming their true self in Christ, without at least one or two people around them getting upset. When I began my job at the YMCA, I didn't know what was going to happen in our family dynamic. I prepared myself for the unknown. I knew it was important for me to tolerate the discomfort and remain present with why taking this job was important to me. My decision changed a pattern cemented in over 10 years of marriage. While I knew this was a good decision, I struggled with guilt. During the first few weeks of my new job, I was flooded with anxiety every day at 3 p.m., wondering, did Pete remember to pick the kids up? I imagined them stranded alone in the schoolyard. What was I thinking? I berated myself. This was a bad idea. My stomach nodded. My mind raced through a hundred unthinkable scenarios. Then I calmed down and reminded myself that the school wouldn't let a six- and nine-year-old out alone on a New York City street. The school would call Pete and he would come. He did forget a couple of times. The kids sat in the principal's office waiting. He had to deal with their anger. Then he had scheduling conflicts because of work. He asked me to fill in. I declined. Our agreement was that he would find his own replacement if he had a schedule conflict. It was hard not to solve the problem for him. It was also not unusual for Pete to forget that he was in charge of dinner. More than once I came home in those first few months to a house of hungry, upset children. We don't like Dad being in charge, they cried. Mom, you have to quit work and come home again. I let them express their feelings, but I didn't quit my job. I assured them this decision was in the best interest of us all, at least in the long run. I stayed the course. They soon adjusted beautifully. Stand firm. Entrenched relational patterns are strong. You can expect to encounter resistance when you choose to stop overfunctioning. 
The goal of this phase is to stand firm in your decision. Others are unaccustomed to seeing you in your new role. The awkwardness extends to everyone around you. Allow time for people's perceptions of both you and others to change. For example, before I took the job, I saw myself as indispensable. As time progressed, it became evident I was not. The kids didn't need me all the time. They soon realized, wow, mom has her own life apart from us. One of my daughters remarked casually, gee, who would have ever thought dad could run the house so well? Slowly, our family settled into new rhythms. Pete came to enjoy the new experiences he had spending afternoons with our girls. Without interference from me, he discovered he had his own unique parenting style. This marked the beginning of a move to co-parent our children. Surprising as it was to me, Pete loved it. Our daughters also benefited from spending more time with Pete. In fact, over time, they came to enjoy his parenting style more than mine. They find his easygoing, more flexible style a pleasure. Now they say, when are you going away, Mom? I, too, learned to relax and enjoy our new rhythm. I actually loved being dispensable. My family didn't need me to hold them together. I appreciated what the girls were receiving emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually as a result of being with Pete. Cooking never became his forte, but I didn't care as long as I didn't have to cook on those nights. Navigating this change provided a kind of template for many other changes in our future. We have learned to operate as a team with flexible roles that don't become frozen in time. We discuss and agree on changes. I am convinced that if I keep someone from growing up by my overfunctioning, I hurt them. To love and serve others well for Christ's sake demands we discern if we are doing something they can and should be doing for themselves. Our own fears and anxieties strongly pull us to change back, especially in the face of resistance. Yet it is critical to give people time to absorb the changes going on around them. We may want to do something, not because it is best, but simply because we lack the maturity to sit back and wait. Choose one area of your life where you are over-functioning. Could be work, marriage, friendship, parenting, church, school. Take a few minutes to review the four phases. Admit you are over-functioning. Unleash the earthquake. Prepare for chaos. Stand firm. What might be a practical next step for you today? Offer this to God, asking the Holy Spirit for counsel and courage. Consider talking with a trusted mentor or mature friend. Then step forward into what God reveals to you. When you are willing to quit over-functioning, you open the door to the next I quit. Quit faulty thinking. In this next chapter, we explore the far-reaching implications of what it means to stop believing something is true when it is false. As we will see, to quit faulty thinking leads us to explore the blockages deep beneath the icebergs in our lives that hinder us from experiencing greater freedom in Christ. <laughs>